Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you want to find your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians, we are just getting started in this new series called True Church as we walk through verse by verse in the, through the book of Ephesians. And uh, I'm glad to see you surviving the heat wave that we're having, right? Like, wouldn't it be almost like good if we could like hop onto a plane right now and head off to Hawaii? Because Hawaii, it's kind of like, it's got it all. I mean, it's got awesome beaches. Not, I mean, we have a decent beach here at Lake Waco, but it doesn't really compare to what you might find in Hawaii. And then, of course, it's absolutely scenic, all sorts of rich history, pretty much perfect temperatures most of the time. Absolutely lovely place. You know, the Hawaiian Islands, there's actually 137 of them. It takes about 1,500 square miles. It's, it's a really hard, large area. All of them are islands, though. They were all formed by volcanoes. It's, there's a magnum source, and so from geological theory, uh, it's called a hotspot. And really, all the Hawaiian Islands are these volcanoes. And of course, you just see the top of them, all right? So for instance, the largest mountain in Hawaii is the, the Mauna Kea. It is 13,800 feet. But that's, that's what you've got from the sea level. But in actuality, if you were to go down to its base, do you know the largest mountain in the world? Not Mount Everest. It is actually the Mauna Kea. Because from the base all the way up, it's like 33,476 feet high. But you and I, we really only see like the top third, right? But most of the mountain, in fact, what allows the island to exist, all is underneath. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Hawaii, absolutely lovely place, but most people that live there and visit there never think about what's going on underneath it. You just, you just focus on what you see in the here and now, right? When we come to the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians is kind of like exploring the Hawaiian islands. But what it does, the book begins by taking a deep dive, as if we are getting into one of those submarines, and we're going to dive deep, deep down, and we're going to look at the actual foundation. We're going to go where most people never even think of. And that's how the book of Ephesians begins. It allows us to see just the immensity of God, how he has been working in the past, the present, and even in the future in regards to the salvation of his people. So when you come to Ephesians chapter 1, we just got started. We looked at the first two verses last week. We're picking it up in verse 3. Verses 3 through 14, in the Greek, it's actually one sentence. It is the longest sentence in the Bible. And we're going to actually see that we're going to just focus on the first, verses 3 through 6, because that actually shows us the work of God, work of God the Father in our salvation. And you actually find each member of the Trinity, the triune God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, actively at work and involved in the redemption of his people. The word redeem means to purchase with a price, to release someone from bondage or slavery. And we're going to see that God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are actively at work to bring about the redemption of his people. Verses 3 through 6, you're going to see that God the Father selects us. He initiates our salvation. Verses 7 through 12, you see God the Son 
saves us. He secures our salvation. And verses 13 and 14, you see God the Spirit seals us as possessing salvation. And each one of these sections ends with the phrase, to the praise of the glory, or to the praise of his glory. Because to understand and to know the depth of God's salvation is to bring about praise and worship in his people. You see, the saving character of God is the foundation and the celebration of Christians. And when you come to Ephesians chapter 1, you're going to get a deep dive into this. You're going to see just how powerful, how great and grand the salvation is. So let's take a look, beginning in verse 3. The truth about God the Father that develops praise in his people. Verse 3 is the first thing we see is that God the Father has blessed us. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So to bless God is to speak of his greatness in response to the great work that he's done or in response to his character. And that's how he begins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because why? He has bestowed upon us, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. These aren't vague or intangible. They are found in the heavenlies to speak of the fact that they are spiritual blessings. And it's not just some, and it's not for the future. At this very present time, those who are in Christ have his resources, his righteousness, his power, the privileges, his presence, his position. All of this is all found in Christ, and it is given as a gift to those who believe. And this, friends, I tell you, is life-changing. Because prior to knowing Jesus Christ, we were enchanted with and ensnared by the idols of this world. We were drawn to money, power, sex outside of marriage. We had this insatiable need to be entertained. It was also all about self-achievement. And our whole identity and our focus was all wrapped up in these things. And they owned us. But God brought us into relationship with himself and he gave us all of the blessings that are found in Christ. And so when you and I go through life, and life hits us really hard sometimes, I mean, don't you have experiences like I have just even recently where you just feel like you just were sucker punched? You did not see this coming. All of a sudden, bam! And it just like totally laid you out. What, what just happened? How... Why is this going on? How in the world? What do you do when life takes it all out of you? You don't need something different. You need something more of what you already have. He's given us every spiritual blessing that is in Christ. When you lack joy, hope, peace, when you're overwhelmed with anxiety, when you don't have any sort of semblance of understanding of what to do next, what do you need? You need the blessings that are found in Christ. We need to actually talk to him. When we worship, we worship from the heart. We need actual fellowship. I mean, yeah, it's all good to talk about sports and and the kids and all that stuff. Nothing wrong with that. 
But where is actual fellowship where we talk about what God is doing in our lives to encourage one another in the faith, to actually remind each other about what is true about God? When we actually renew ourselves with the Word of God, you know what happens? We come back in focus with Christ, in whom are all the blessings, every single one, and they belong to us. Friends, this is a gift from God the Father. And it, what it's meant to do is bring about the praise of his people. You see, God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing that is found in Christ. Let me show you something else that really brings about praise as a result of the work of God. You find out that God the Father has chosen us, that Christians are chosen for holiness before the foundation of the world. Take a look at verse 4. What's going to happen is we're going to take a deep dive. Remember that submarine I told you about? We're going to go look at the foundation of the mountain. We're going to go where most people never go when it comes to the character of God or salvation. We're going to see just how great and grand our God is. Look what he has done. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He chose us in him. He chose us to be in Christ when? Before the world even existed. Before there was Adam and Eve. Before we ever even drew our first breath. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us to be in Christ. The word means to be, to be called or to be picked out. God has selected us. Lego is the Greek word. It means to elect. He has chosen us. And it's, he does so so that we will experience and know his love. I tell you, this is absolutely fascinating when you let it settle in what God is saying in this text. Before the foundation of the world, there's no human merit before any decision, before time, before creation. He picked you. He elected you. And I want you to know that God didn't just like draw straws, nor is it like some people say, well, God, he looked into the future and he saw all those that were going to believe, and so then he elected them as if he's responding to just human choice. I want you to know that what we find here is God is the one who is in charge of salvation. And he has brought it about. He has started it. He's initiated it from before the foundation of the world. Now you're like, whoa, wait a second here. Does that negate man's responsibility, human free will? Absolutely not. They both exist simultaneously. It's how God has set it up. And how it fits, how, like, how does God's providential, sovereign will, his choosing, electing, work with human responsibility and man's free will? We will never know fully. We'll never be able to wrap our mind around it fully, this side of eternity. But what we do have is what God has revealed in his word. And what you and I are called to do is to take God at his word. That's what faith is. Faith is taking God at his word. Even if we can't fully explain it and we have questions, what we do is we let God be God and we believe in the truth that he has revealed. 
and we glory and rejoice in that. And you're like, well, how do you even make sense of this? Well, let me tell you where you start. You start with the exact same text that Tammy read to us just a few minutes ago. Like Isaiah 55, verse 9, it says this, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is God speaking. He says, listen, me, my thoughts, my work, how I do things, it is far grander, far greater than your finite mind could ever understand. And so I want you to know that Scripture emphasizes both God's sovereignty and his human responsibility. Let me give you some verses on that. In fact, Jesus actually combined both of those grand thoughts in one verse. John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. What's that? Well, that's God's sovereignty. But then in the exact same sentence, and he said, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So what's going on here? All that the Father gives to me will come to me. But then he also says, the one who comes to me, I will not in any way cast out. What's that? That's human responsibility. That is man exercising his will and believing. And Jesus says, if you respond, I will never cast you out. How does that all work fully? Why, we'll never be able to fully explain it. But we know it's true because it's written all over the scripture. Let me give you a few more verses. John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to him except what? Jesus drawing them. Who's, who's doing that work? God is. Jesus is. Or let me give you another text. Matthew chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. It says this. We're very familiar with verse 28, but do you know the verse that comes before it? Listen to what Jesus says. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And, listen to this, anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Wow, that is God actively at work, providentially in control, right? But listen to the very next verse. You're familiar with it. Todd actually just got done quoting it. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you weary, burdened? Your sin got you driven down? Are you Are you broken before God? Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary. And what does he say? And I will give you rest. Here we have God's sovereignty and people making choices and believing. And God's sovereignty is so great that he can, in that economy of his sovereignty, he allows for the free will decisions of people. How that all works we could never fully explain. All we can do is stand back and go, what an awesome God we have. J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, discusses divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And he says this, what the Bible is, to, what the Bible does is to assert both truths side by side in the strongest and most unambiguous terms as two ultimate facts. This, therefore, 
is the position we must take in our own thinking. And then he recounts uh, an exchange that took place with Charles Haddon Spurgeon, kind of the prince of preachers, a brilliant man. And he says, C.H. Spurgeon was one once asked if he could reconcile these two truths to each other. And this is what Spurgeon said. I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. And you're saying like, friends? Yes, friends. This is the point we have to grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends, and they work together. And so what we see is that, yes, man has a choice, and man exercises faith. That's true of every person. But at the same time, we see that it's God who is mightily at work and demonstrating his sovereign choice. And I want you to know that the Bible doesn't say, well, people that are rejecting God and they are going to face the penalty of their sins, it's because they weren't chosen or predestined. That's never how the scripture presents it. It always presents it because people have rejected God. And so what we need to do is we need to hold these two glorious truths in tension and realize that they exist and they're moving forward on a parallel track. And you're like, well, wait a second here. Okay, why would God choose some and not others? That's a question I've really wrestled with. Why some but not others? And let me give you a question that we really should be asking. Why would God choose anyone? Huh? When you consider our sinfulness, our rebellion toward God, when I think of my own waywardness and all the transgressions, right? A a heart that is really prone to wander. It's prideful, self-sufficient, right? All about me. When you see that God has given me salvation, friends, you're like, why in the world would he do that? And so we, we realize that it's God fully at work, but we are also called to exercise faith. And you're like, well, how does that kind of like even work? I'm going to give you a couple of illustrations. There are limitations to these illustrations, but I have found them to be helpful. I'll pass them on to you. In salvage yards, they have these massive electromagnets, okay? And they're giant, and when they turn them on, these magnets have the, op- the way of actually separating metals. And so when these, this tremendous magnetic force is exercised and that magnet is on, all the ferrous metals are, are like drawn to that magnet. In fact, they use this for sorting out metals. It's part of that process. But metals like aluminum and brass, they absolutely do not respond to the magnet. Same magnetic force, some respond, some do not. Well, let me give you another illustration. Like a radio or a television broadcast. Do you know like there's like electric waves are being ma- just broadcast almost throughout the entirety of the world. But unless you actually have the proper receiver, you don't receive the signal. So if you have the proper receiver, and let's say there is a broadcast, and you can get the game because you've got the receiver, you, you can engage. But if you don't have the receiver, the, those electric magnetic waves, they're, they're, those electric waves are all around you, but guess what? You don't respond to them. And that's how it works. And yet, why does God do this? Well, notice what the text says. 
Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless. Jesus said this in John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. You didn't choose me, I chose you for this purpose so that you would bear fruit and your fruit would remain. What is that fruit? Verse 4 It is the fruit of being holy and blameless. It's the fruit of being set apart to God. When you and I came and placed our faith in Christ, we were set apart to God and his purposes to reflect the character and the nature of God to the people that we come in contact with. Whether that is accepted by our world or we're very much finding ourselves going in a very different direction, we reflect the loveliness and the character of God. We are holy It shows up in our morality, our decisions, how we talk, how we interface, how we live, how we give, our priorities. We are holy. We're set apart to God. And at the same time, we are to be blameless. It has the idea that we are free from guilt because truly God has taken it all away through the payment that we have in Christ. That is why the gospel is good news. God has done it. So we don't live in despair and just beating ourselves up over all of our past sin or even the sin that occurred even yesterday. We know that we are forgiven in Christ. We are unconditionally loved. We walk away and walk forward blameless. That is the beauty of Christ. And you're like, wow, we have been given this amazing gift. And we'll find out in Ephesians chapter 4, he says we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. First three chapters, all about our identity, what we truly believe. Chapters four through six, how we live. But it all gets started with our identity in Christ and what God has done for us. And you're like, I can, I can see it. Like some of you are like, I've never heard like any of this before, okay? Like, wow, that's in the Bible. Yeah, it is. I recall one couple, uh, we, I was teaching on the subject and they, they had never heard this before. You know, they just kind of been to churches that kind of always skip different passages like this. And so like, man, we, we've never heard this. And so they were like, this is, this is so different than I've ever thought. Can you help us? I'm like, yeah. I'm going to give you a bunch of verses. And what I want you to do is you just look at the scriptures. You look at what God has said in his word and let just God do his work in your heart and your mind with his truth. And so they did that. And he got back to me and he said, man, I can't believe it. Now that I'm really starting to read the Bible, why I see God's sovereign work everywhere. I don't know how I missed it. And I can relate to that. Because when I became a Christian, I didn't know any of this, right? I knew Jesus, I'm a sinner, Christ died for me, I'm believing, I've got salvation. I didn't actually, until I started reading the Bible, not just selected passages or verse here and there, but like actually reading it through, to hit like a book like Ephesians to really start wrestling with these concepts. My friends, I'll tell you, these, these truths like we find in verse 4 give me such a deep sense of security and stability. I realize that my salvation is not anything that I did. It's not even an agreement between me and God. It's all of God. It's all of grace. That gives me such stability. In fact, it is a foundation that frees us 
when we really rest in it. You see, the truth that, about God the Father that really brings about praise in our life, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has chosen us, wow, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Let me show you one other thing. God has adopted us. That believers have been predestined to adoption through Christ. So take a look at the very end of verse 4. Remember I told you this is all one big sentence? He says, in love. This actually tells us the divine motive of God's elective purpose. He says, in love, verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. He predestined us. It has the idea of to be marked out or decided beforehand. Who did this? God did. He predestined us to what purpose? To adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. So God has predestined us so that we would experience adoption. Now, adoption was very familiar in a a common practice in the Roman world. And what this looked like, if, if you were adopted... Whatever family that you had come from, anything associated with that family, including your name, that was all gone. You now were brought into a new family if you were adopted. You had all the rights, all the benefits. You received the inheritance. You actually got a new name. You were brought into the family. You were adopted. And I want you to know that if you have been adopted, that means that someone chose you, selected you. They love you. They provided for you. They are loving you unconditionally, that's what God does. And we, we see that. I mean, just looking around, I know that there are people here that you have been involved in adoption. You have, yourself have been adopted. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But one thing that human adoption cannot do that God does is that we not only receive the blessings that are found in Christ, God actually gives us a new nature. We actually become like Christ, by virtue of our relationship with him. When we're adopted into his family, we are literally changed. So like he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word. It's deeply familiar. It's kind of like daddy or possibly like papa, but it's like a term of endearment, of great love. You and I have been adopted into the family of God. Now, let me help you understand why this is so significant. I need to bring you into the Roman culture. I need to bring you into the original recipients that received this letter. What did it look like in Rome? Well, let me tell you what it looked like when a child was born. Now, you're going to perhaps revolt by this practice, but this is what happened. Every child that was born in a Roman family, once the child was born, it was laid down, and the father, the father of the family, he walked in, and he would examine this brand new baby, and he would make a decision whether or not he was going to accept and receive the child. And so if the father, and this happened lots of times, picked up the child, it represented that this child was his, that this child was going to be a part of the family. 
But if the father should come and examine and look, oh, that's a girl, I wanted a boy. Or it's a boy and I wanted a girl. Or wait a second here. Something doesn't seem quite right. I don't want to deal with this. This is going to be even more war. I, I, I don't want this. The father could make this choice, and it happened pretty regularly. He said no. And he would turn and walk away. Someone else would take that child, and they would take it oftentimes to the agora, which means the marketplace. And they would lay that child down in a place that people would know because this was the common practice in Rome. They did this because we're going to leave the fate of this child to the gods. And so they will expose this child to the elements and let's just see what should happen. And let me tell you what did happen. Sometimes the child died. But sometimes people are like actually took the child in to turn it and raise it into a slave or if a girl into prostitution, and they would be sold and treated as such. This is the culture that existed. And I tell you this, friends, because rarely in the Roman culture was a baby killed. They just, if it was rejected by the father, it was, it was left to a horrific life. I want you to know, Paul is writing to a culture of abandonment. And when he says you're adopted as sons, as children of the Father, man, that is just absolutely immense. How could it be? Have you ever been rejected or canceled? Have you? You know what that's like? You ever been like your fiance broke it off? Or maybe your spouse, you were married, you were doing everything you can to try to make it work, and like he or she like, man, I'm done with this. I, I don't want this anymore. I'm not, I'm done. And they walked away. You ever been canceled by by one of your kids? They're like, I don't care about you. I don't care about our family. I don't care all this heritage that you gave me. Not doing my own thing. I'll, I'll talk with you when I want. You're canceled. You're done. Or maybe as a business owner, have you have you really like invested in an employee? You know, like really helped her or helped him really gain traction and really understand the business. And of course, because they're a part of your business, they, they had access to all the clients and you work together and then somebody else said, hey, listen, we're going to offer you a 10K more. Come over here. And uh, like, whoa, that's all about the money. And so they left as if you had done nothing for them. But they just didn't leave. They took a good chunk of your business with them. That was all part of the plan. You ever experienced that kind of rejection? You're, you know what it's like. Every single one of us has been rejected at different times, right? I want you to know that your most defining moment is not who has thrown you out, but who has brought you in. That's the Father. He has adopted you and brought you in to his family. Your most defining moment isn't your sin and all the evil things that you have done. It isn't the bad things and the tremendous hurt that has been inflicted on your life that still just seems to almost kind of bring a trauma-like grief to you. It's not even all of your great achievements and your success, past or present. The greatest thing about us is what our Creator has done for us. And this text tells us He's predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Why did He do that? 
You see that verse 5? According to the kind intention of his will. His kindness. It was the intention of his will. It was his good pleasure. And he says in verse 6, what is this meant to do? You know that you're understanding this and believing it when verse 6 is your reality. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. To the praise of God's grace in the beloved. It's a messianic title. It means um, one who is loved deeply. It refers to God the Son. So can't you see the Father in this deep relationship of love with the Son? He actually then has his adopted children in Christ. We are so deeply, deeply loved. And you know, people thrive when they live with security, stability, safety, and love. Don't you see that? Like your spouse, if, if that's how you treat them, I want you to really thrive. Your family, your kids, your friends, our church, if it is rooted in stability, love, safety, security, people thrive in that environment. And that's true of us. You see, we are loved by God far more than we know. It's kind of like the people in Hawaii, they rarely think of this, this massive mountain that they're standing on. But I want you to know, when it comes to our salvation, it is massive, it is great, and it is, speaks of the immensity of God. You see, salvation is the story of God in the lives of his people. That's what this is all about. And we have the joy of just knowing him. You know, for the first three chapters of Ephesians, it's just all about what God has done for us. It's all about identity. It's about God choosing, adopting, God bringing us from death to life, God taking Jews and Gentiles and making them into one body, the church. And he spends the first three chapters never once telling you you need to do this. And that doesn't happen until chapter four. Why? Because you need to know who you really are before God ever calls us to behave. You see, what we believe about ourselves drives how we behave. So if you really believe and you know that you're a child of God, that God has worked out his, this salvation, and it gets started all the way in eternity past, that you've been adopted into his family, you're one of his, guess what? You live very differently than if you don't know those truths. And so many people, though, and this is the problem, they find their identity, their primary identity, in what they do, right? So what does this look like? So like, let's say you're in sales, and you're good at sales, and you make lots of sales, the market's good. But what happens when that market dries up? What happens if you're involved in investments, and like, you're in charge of a lot of money, and all your money's wrapped up in this, and the stock market tanks? Then what happens? Well, if your identity is all wrapped up in the money, guess what? It explains why people jump off buildings when these things happen. They, they don't have any semblance of identity apart from that type of success. Or if you're a coach, sure, great when you're winning, but what happens when you got a losing season? If your identity is wrapped up in how those players are playing and the wins and losses, friends, that is really fragile and feeble, and it will not hold up. And you find this with people in ministry. It's all about ministry success, and it's just pretty much kind of a numbers game, and, and it's, it's fierce, and uh, lots of people are like that, right? That's why part of the reason why you got all these pastors like just, I'm leaving. I'm leaving the ministry, right? Done with that. 
But you find people and say, my success is in my job and my, my title, past achievements, how much money I've got, man. I want to find out how I'm doing. Pulling it up, okay, that's, man, I'm not doing so well. Look at the stock market. My, my money's wrapped up there. Are all the rental properties that I've got. And then, of course, you see this with, like, people, like, beautiful people, like, people that are very attractive physically. But you got, like, some women that, like, I, I cannot get to 30. I, I just can't. What, what's happening here? Because their whole identity is wrapped up in their beauty. It's like Proverbs says, you know, uh, it, beauty is fleeting, Right? But if it's all wrapped up in what you look like, what's going to happen as the aging process kind of continues Why all of a sudden you've lost your identity? Some people, you put all of your identity in your kids, right? And you do everything you can to win their approval. They treat you like dirt. They're, not, they're, they're really growing up with, without really understanding of authority, understanding how the world really works. And what happens when those kids leave what happens to your identity if that's if your identity is all wrapped up in those kids god says i want you to understand that your identity isn't your past sin your present problems it's all about what i've done for you and knowing the great love of god the father changes how we live in this world and so what we want to do we want to get to know the blessings that we have from god the father that's why I encourage you, like, join a Bible study or a life group. There are plenty of opportunities, and one of the things you discover is like, wow, God is awesome, and he's blessed us immensely. Another thing you can do is when you praise God for his greatness of salvation, do so in your prayer life. Like, let that actually feature, and do it when you worship. Like, worship God from the heart, in spirit and in truth. The people that are praising God from the heart are those who realize, wow, what an amazing, saving character God is, what he's done, and his salvation, and his redemption. It is worthy, and it evokes great praise from me. And another thing you can do is get plugged into, like, a community here at Fellowship. Because you know why? We're adopted into his family, and life is meant to be lived in relationship. He's brought us into our, his family. He doesn't want us to be antisocial. He wants us to experience his grace. So whether you're cleaning a bathroom or you're running a company, I want you to understand that if you're in Christ, he has brought about salvation to the praise of his glory. And so it's kind of like the folks either living on Hawaii or visiting there. You always focus on what you see, but I want you to take a few minutes to let it sink in. Really, you're standing on what you don't see. And so it is when it comes to salvation. Friends, know this. Knowing the great love of God the Father it actually changes how believers live in this world. So what we're going to do at this point is we're going to actually partake in communion. And I want you, with everything that we have just read and discussed here from this text, take this in. Now, if you did not receive one of these cups that has a communion wafer on there, just put your hand up. Uh, One of the ushers will present this to you. Uh, But what I want you to know is that you do not need to be a member of Fellowship Bible Church to partake in communion here, but you do truly need to know Christ. In fact, the Bible warns if you don't know him, you should not partake. What you really need to do is believe now. But as we go into communion, I want you to do so thinking about Jesus Christ who made all this possible through his death and resurrection.